Hi, my name is Dr. Ruby Payne, and I would like to tell you about my new book, Emotional Poverty Volume 2. It follows Emotional Poverty Volume 1, and basically what it does is gives more in-depth information from Emotional Poverty 1. The purpose of both books is to help give educators a vocabulary to talk about what's happening emotionally to them and their students and to give strategies to deal with it. As we become more and more acquainted with what is happening with COVID and the emotional impacts on children, it becomes absolutely critical that as educators, we have a better vocabulary and a better understanding. One of the things that we're going to look at now in depth are part of the continuation of Emotional Poverty One, and this is an organizer for the book. What we're going to look at is the emotional body tells. In other words, how do you look at the child's emotional responses physically and understand what that means in terms of a deeper issue and strategies to deal with it? And I use the research of the FBI, Navarro, in which he looks at how you begin to examine bodies to know when they're in distress or not. And it helps you also then to assess your safety issues in your campus. And what we're going to do now is look at each of these in a little bit more detail uh, as to what it means. So chapter one is the student and the limbic center and what's going on, as I said, with their emotional tells. Like if you are wanting to know which is the most honest part of a student's body, in other words, how do you know anybody's body for that matter? What would you say? Many people say it's the eyes. You would be wrong. It is actually, according to FBI, the feet. And I want to explain to you about why the feet are so critical. What happens, in the, you will see in this next video, what happens in your brain is that your very basis of your brain is your brain stem. And the first thing you have to decide is that we're going to freeze, fight, or run, Okay. And that that is the first response to anything that jeopardizes your safety or belonging. And I've simplified what Brian Siegel has done in UCLA uh, to talk a model for the brain. Your hands are in many ways a model for the brain. So I want to explain this and then talk about why the emotional tells are critical. I'd like to give you a hand model that is basically developed by a man named Siegel. He's a neuropsychologist out of UCLA. And your hands in many ways represent your brain or can be used that way. When I say that a person has an unregulated, unintegrated brain, it's actually a physical thing. And the fastest way to teach it to students is to have them use their hand. So if you think of your hand as part of your brain, what the research says is that if you put your two hands together like this, this is actually the size of your brain. Now, that's not real comforting, okay? And some people are bigger and have bigger hands, etc. But your brain basically is about three pounds, and it's the consistency of soft butter. So if you think about your brain as a hand, this would be your brain stem. This is your involuntary and your motivational systems sleeping, breathing, eating, sex, all your motivational systems, all your involuntary systems. It's kind of like the Bee Gees song, staying alive, staying alive. That's what your brainstem does, where you make cortisol. This is your spine. 
Your thumb now is your amygdala, A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A. And your amygdala is really the emotional center of your brain. Your amygdala is structured by the time you're three years old, and it's structured before you have language. So one of the things that happens is you learn things, they get embedded there, that you act on, even though you don't know you have them. Have you ever done something and after you did it, you thought, oh no, that's my mother again, that's my father? Well, that was your amygdala. And your amygdala gets developed in this way. When you are an infant, you are basically deciding, you have so many stimuli coming to you at once, is it safe or is it dangerous? Because the basis of all emotional well-being is safety and belonging. So what you want to know, is this environment safe? Is this person safe? Do I belong? Do I like it? You smell the milk, the bottle, you like it, you move toward it. And emotions are pretty simple. You're either moving toward something or you're moving away from it. If you're attacking it, you want it to move away from you. And so everything is, do I like it? Do I want to move closer to it? Do I not like it? Do I want to move away? And based upon that then, it becomes a huge basis for your emotional processing. In other words, is this something I like? Yes, no. And we sign then emotions to it. This is your cortex. It's your skull. It's the part of your brain that covers, it covers your brain. It's the skull and it's hard. And one of the things is that's where your thoughts are. So when you think about something, you have a representation, you go to that level of the brain. These two fingers right here are the prefrontal cortex or PFC as it's often called. Your prefrontal cortex is right here in the front of your brain and it is your regulator. It regulates your brain. So when you're driving down the highway and you don't like how someone's driving and you're thinking, hey, I'd like to help them off the road. The reason you don't is because your prefrontal cortex kicks in and says things to you like, I don't want to live in jail, not today, etc. It's a regulator. What happens when your brain is integrated and regulated is this. When it's integrated, this emotional self talks to the brainstem and it talks to the cortex, okay? Surrounding this, your thumb, is something called the hippocampus, and it's the broader emotional frame you operated in. It is the, literally the story you tell about yourself and your life. Well, what happens when your brain is integrated? Your thumb and hippocampus is talking to your brainstem, it's talking to your cortex. When it's regulated, it means that your prefrontal cortex is controlling your reaction. When your brain is not regulated and not integrated, then you have this. You have an in-your-face explosion. And one of the things that's really critical to remember is that when that happens in your classroom or with your own child or another adult, if you interpret it as disrespect, that would be a mistake. It's actually an indicator that you're dealing with an unregulated, unintegrated brain. And then you have to ask yourself, what do I do with that? 
So one of the things we look at now is how do you watch the body more closely? And this book has a chart in it, comfortable and uncomfortable. And we look at what that means as you begin to look at, is the student comfortable or uncomfortable? One thing that Joe Navarro said in his FBI book is that there's always a relationship between the discomfort and the comfort, which brings me back to the feet. Because your brain stem is here and because it's so fast, emotions are 200 to 5,000 times faster, it actually goes immediately from your brain stem down your spine to your feet. It doesn't even go through the cortex. Joe Navarro tells this story about a woman they were interviewing, the FBI was. They thought she was keeping her son that they were looking for in her home. They asked her, does your son ever stay with you? And she said no, and her foot jerked. And then immediately she started doing this. Now, this is a, sat, uh, a soothing behavior. There's a lot of nerve endings here. People, females will play with their jewelry. Males will often pull on their collar. It is tie. It's soothing. If you've ever watched a student rub their legs with their hands, they're self-soothing. And what Navarro said is you look at the relationship between discomfort and self-soothing, because that's a more accurate indicator of whether or not the person is comfortable emotionally with what they're telling you. Ten minutes later, he asked the woman, what bedroom would your son stay in if he stayed here? And she said, he doesn't stay here, her foot jerk. And she started this again. About 10 minutes later, he said, what bed would he be in when he stays here? Her foot jerked. She said, he does not stay here and started doing this again. They got a search warrant and the boy was there. So one of the things is that your body tells are very critical. So this chapter has a lot of information about that. And then it looks at how you calm them down. Okay. How you begin to calm them when you notice the students are uncomfortable and what that means. Chapter two looks at how you do more with the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is where you do impulse control. And what we know is that both ADHD and anxiety can come out of the prefrontal cortex. The thing about anxiety and ADHD is simply this, that they are indicators that there's an issue. And one of the things that your prefrontal cortex does is it empathy, insight, response, regulation, body regulation, attuned communication. That means I see you, you see me, okay? And what we look at is how you begin to identify strategies that will lessen both anxiety and impulsivity. One of the things we know based on the work of Daniel Amen, and he's a psychiatrist who uses brain scans, is that there are actually brain indicators in brain scans that you have when you have ADHD. And we know that there's a marked decrease okay, in the prefrontal cortex activity, actually. One of the things that many, many individuals have that they don't know they have is they've had a, a childhood brain injury, they've fallen, and it has made a difference in how their brain processes. One of the things he, he explains is your cortex is very hard and your brain itself is very soft. It's the consistency of soft butter. And one thing that happens is you often, that cortex hits the brain itself. And so one of the things we know is there are things you can do for that. The book has charts, checklists, 
strategies. Now, anxiety can come out of the amygdala or the cortex, but there are several strategies in there for anxiety. And one is a very simple one called if then. One of the things that happens for you to convince your brain is you have to buy into something you already know or can do. Anxiety happens when people get involved in their cortex, if, if, then. Now, anxiety can all, if, what if, what if, what if, what if. And you have to work with students on if, then. And there's a strategy for that. One last side here. If anxiety comes out of your amygdala, it's an emotional response. It actually hijacks your cortex and you're not able to actually think. So that's, there's two kinds of anxieties. Now, a third chapter looks at adolescent brain development. And I was absolutely fascinated by what I learned here. I taught high school for nine years. And one thing that just stood out for me significantly is that what you have to do in adolescence to survive adolescence in school is very different than what your brain is actually processing and developing. When you, are, when you go through puberty, your brain actually restructures itself because you have different chemicals, you have different hormones, etc. And so it restructures itself from the back to the front. So the very last thing in an adolescent brain to develop is the prefrontal cortex, and it develops on the average about male, cor male brains develop that on the average about two years behind female brains. And so in the hard brain research, what's happening now is that you have this theater of adolescence. So on stage in front of the audience, there's school, okay? But backstage is all the brain development. And three of the things that are most critical that you develop during this time, social dominance, social cognition, perspective taking, you're understanding reward and risk. And on top of that, you're developing a moral code. Those things right there, we ignore in schools. We act as if they don't even matter, but it's the most important job that the brain has at that point in time in terms of development. And one of the things that is not talked about, but everybody observes in both middle and high school, is this thing about social dominance. And social dominance is about survival in its very simplest form. Um, and it's about the fact that there's competition for resources, protection, and inclusion. So the way that shows up in males is this competition to be an alpha male, okay? And we see that with the quarterback of the football team, yada, yada, yada. And for females, it's competition to compete to win the alpha male. And one of the things is, this is old, old, old. Uh, in the book, there's a, a research that comes out of Jordan Peterson's book about lobsters, and they're 350 million years old. And lobsters are very smart. And what happens is they really demonstrate in the research they've done with them, what they did is they took a lobster from different areas and re, uh, resettled them in an, uh, an area where there weren't lobsters. And then they watched how they socially interacted. And it is as old as time. And so part of what happens is that actually social bullying comes out of social dominance, okay? It's a hierarchy, a ranking system that, Primates, humans, 
people almost engage in intuitively, but it is at the end about who gets the resources, who gets the protection and who gets the belonging. Okay. Um, And we also look in this chapter, what porn does to brains. I don't know if you know this, but it is a huge impact on social cognition because what happens is that if you start your porn in your teens and the research is from Stanford University that the average adolescent male watches 50, five, zero porn clips a week. What it does is that you rewire your brain to a screen, not to people. Okay. And it creates some very fascinating things in this way. Eventually, and we talk more about it in the workshop, but eventually what happens is that you, your social cognition suffers significantly. In other words, how people interact, how you read people, how you have relationships. And what we know is this, that what you have to do a part of identity in adolescence is figure out who you are as a sexual individual, because that leads you to intimacy and intimacy then leads you to having an adult life that is is full of relationships beneficial. And the problem is this, when you don't have intimacy, then you're isolated. And in the social determinants of health research, social isolation is as damaging to you physically as cigarette smoking. And you on the average die much younger than your peers. And so What we look at is how that whole thing shapes the adolescent brain and what that means as you work on perspective taking, social cognition, et cetera. Chapter four is about the hippocampus and where you keep the story of who you are. And one of the things this becomes critical is because it's been such a factor for all of us, but particularly during COVID. Because what we know in the hard research is that if you can't keep a coherent story of who you are over time and over context, so time is, this is when I was, who I was when I was young, this is who I am now, this is who I'll be in the future, that kind of thing. Context is, this is the way I'm at home, this is the way I'm at school, this is the way I'm at work, or what has happened now with COVID, this is who I was before COVID. This is who I was during COVID, and this is who I am right now, and COVID's not over. It's this whole conversation about keeping a a coherent story. In fact, we know that a lot of PTSD, particularly for vets, is related to the inability to have a coherent story. And we know that if you come out of financial poverty, your hippocampus is smaller than kids who come out of an educated household. It's much more difficult for you to have a coherent story of who you are. And so we look at how the stories identify your wounds, how they have you build a coherent story, and how you use metaphor stories to make that happen. Metaphor stories are absolutely fabulous. And there's a technique that you can use with students to help understand what story they're carrying around in their head. If you've ever had a student and you watched them do something and you knew they didn't know why you did it, they did it, and you don't know why they did it, one of the tools you can use is a metaphor story. Chapter five is about stressed adults and what that means. One of the most interesting things about stress, and one of the things I want to, we stress in the book, is that 
when you are stressed as an adult, the hard research is that your informational processing suffers significantly and your ability to respond appropriately is significantly reduced. And I can tell you from my own personal experience that when I'm stressed, I I don't make the best decisions at all, okay? And so it's a lot like an iceberg. About 90% of it is held in your cellular level in your cells, okay? Cells have memory, okay? And you hold a lot of stress there. And it's called allostatic load. And part of the reality is we think that if we if we just stress is carried in the mind, it's not, it's actually carried physically. And when we say we have to learn, when people try to suppress the stress, it actually takes more energy to suppress it, okay? So it even increases the stress level. So the bottom line is how do we understand it? There's an app on your cell phone that you can get, tells you your heart rate variability. It's one of the most accurate indicators of whether you're stressed or not. And what we know is this, it's all related to your autonomic nervous system and which goes down your spine, okay? And it impacts all your organs and it tells you exactly, are you stressed or not? For example, one of the things that happens is this, is if you just do this simple tool, If you just go like this, ah, like you're looking at the sun, you walked outside, you lift your arms and go, ah, if you do this one thing, it relaxes your body because it puts oxygen in your autonomic nervous system. Okay. So there are lots of things we look at how you identify stress in yourself, how you help identify it so that and tools for you to better regulate it. What most people don't understand is that it's actually carried cellularly. So we have this little assessing your current stress levels quiz in there. How do you know that? And we look at the role of epigenetics in also increasing your stress. Epigenetics is how your body changes its DNA in relationship to stress and how you may inherit also issues around stress both environmentally, through stories, and physically. The last chapter in the book looks at a brain-based approach to parents and caregivers. It's about the emotional dance of parenting. I would submit to you that what we do with our parents, how we approach parents, could be improved in this way. We try to think about parenting as this cognitive, rational activity. It's not. Parenting is probably the most emotional activity any human being engages in, okay? And people, it is gut-wrenching at times. And if you've ever been a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the reality is, is that people either parent the way they were parented or in reaction to how they were parented. So it is an emotional kind of Parenting is emotional. So how do we address it so that we serve them much better? And one of the things we look at is bias. Uh, Bias in both uh, educators and parents, because it works both ways. And we don't look at implicit bias just by race. We look at it by, by all kinds of things. Like one of the most interesting things in the research, it has to do, people immediately make a judgment about you based upon your shoes or boots, okay? Um, 
What about your jewelry, your weight, okay, your energy level, your emotional status? I mean, your race, okay? Are you a member of the dominant group or not, okay? Uh, what's your educational attainment? Last week, New York Times and Wall Street Journal both had articles in them about how the Americans, it's not okay to be racist or sexist, but it's still okay to have huge prejudices and open discrimination and intolerance of people who are not educated. And so how does that impact how we interact and mix with individuals? What's your dialect? Okay. Do you fit in with the dialect of the area? And so what we look, what's your immigrant status? Okay. And all these other pieces, do you speak the language of the country into which you are, are negotiating? So these, we look at implicit bias and we have, we also look then at institutional bias. We have strategies for approaching parents, strategies for planning a parent teacher conference. And for those of you who have deal with affluent parents, strategies for keeping the uh, involvement appropriate. Okay. So one of the things is this book has lots of hard data about the brain, how it processes, and a lot of strategies then, how to better understand, how to better meet the needs of our students and ourselves. I am so excited by this, and I hope to see you on one of our webinars or online trainings soon. If you're interested in a copy of the book, you can get it. Uh, from ahaprocess.com, A-H-A-P-R-O-C-E-S-S.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And thank you for all you do for kids.